The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, what happened to the markets in 2023 and what's ahead for 2024? We will discuss the bull case and the bear case for 2024, plus the Federal Reserve, the presidential election, and much more. That's with our guest, Fritz Foltz from 3Edge. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets, Rusty. What are you watching out for? We are recording this in late January. So as we're recording this, we've had a couple pretty positive economic reports. First of all, we had a strong GDP report earlier this week, well above expectations. Economic growth is clearly better than most had expected. Uh, Inflation continues to drop with the latest PCE inflation report at 2.9% year-over-year basis. And that is the Federal Reserve's favorite inflation indicator. So really, is it truly a Goldilocks economic and market environment? And how long can that continue? Well, today's guest is a Wiley veteran who has seen a few market cycles and a track record of navigating them successfully. It will be interesting to get his take on where the markets might go and how financial advisors and investors should be thinking about their investment portfolios. All right. Well, let's bring in our guest. Fritz Foltz is a managing partner and chief investment strategist at Three Edge Asset Management in Boston. Fritz, welcome to The Lane Machine. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thank you. And thanks to you and Rusty for inviting me back. Very yep. nice here. Well, this should be fun. So let's get the fun started. Of course, Fritz, as you know, our tradition is we need a walk-up song to get this interview started, to kind of set the tone. What is your walk-up song for today's interview? Well, I actually looked at the link that you sent with your extensive playlist now, and I thought I would add another song as a collection if I yes, could. Yes, that's what we want. All right, so I want to add the song, Everything is Coming Our Way by Santana. Oh. I don't think there's any Santana on the current playlist. There is, and it sounds you for any a new artist. Nice. Well, another welcome addition to the list. Thanks, Fritz. Hi, <laughs> offense. Right, well, so, looking at your career, you've been at Three Edge for eight years or so, and I believe that position took you out of retirement, if that's right. Tell us more about your background and what drew you to Three Edge. Right. So, Three Edge was founded in 2015. And so you're right about the timing there. But the story of Three Edge really goes all the way back to the early 2000s with our prior firm, which was Windward Investment Management. And I joined Windward back in early 2000s to work with Steve Cucchiaro, the founder. Steve is now the CEO and chief investment officer at Three Edge. So we began Windward and we grew that firm up until 2010 when it was acquired by Charles Schwab. And then we stayed um, for a transition period of a couple, two or three years. And then we left. And that's when I went went into forced retirement because we had a non-compete, obviously, with Charles Schwab. 
But what we could do is start to put this new firm together. We wanted to work together. And so the core of our research and the core of our investment team are all back together. And that new firm is Three Edge Asset Management. So yeah, we've got to be under our belt now. Yeah. So part of what defines Three Edge is the Three Edge model, which is defined as human plus machine and empowers your investment research process. Can you talk more about that and what really sets Three Edge apart? Absolutely. So is it, I think the best way to describe this is to talk about Steve Kukyar, who was the founder of, of, of the original Windward. Steve studied and was a math major at MIT, and he studied something called system dynamics, which is simply how do you analyze a complex system? He had no, at that time, interest in finance. But when he got through with MIT and the study of system dynamics, he went to Wharton because he did want to get uh, exposure to the investment side uh, the investment industry. And while he was at Wharton, it dawned on him that no one really had ever analyzed the global capital markets as a complex system. And so this is where the light went off and he decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a model of the global capital markets based on this concept of system dynamics. And two things that happen in a complex system. One, there are leads and lag times. So if something changes in your system, it will have an impact on other areas of the system, but that won't happen right away. There will be a lag. And so you can think about in terms of the markets, if there's a change in interest rates or the shape of the yield curve, that will have an impact. It'll have some impact immediately, but the more profound impact will happen with a long, as they say, a long and variable lag. So that's one uh, aspect of a, of a complex system. And the other is that there are these feedback loops. And so simply thinking about a feedback loop, you could think about it as A makes B go higher, B makes C go higher, and then C makes A go even higher. And we have this happening also in the capital markets. And maybe we saw that in the last couple of months of last year, right, where the market just uh, assumed that the Fed had pivoted and it really took off and people started buying because people were buying. So that's the way that we analyze. And so our model basically looks across nine of the major asset class groups, equities, fixed income, real assets, gold, commodities, cash, currencies, and the model factors valuations, economic and market factors, as well as investor behavior. Those are our three edges, uh, if you will. So we are using our model research to analyze those major asset class groups and to make our investment decisions. And the reason is human plus machine is because the output of the model does not translate directly into a portfolio. There's an investment committee be standing between that output and the ultimate allocation in the portfolio. And the reason we do that is we want to make sure that what the model is telling us just makes common sense. We've been in this for a long time. We have experience and, and understanding. And with the model, you just have to be careful because it can go down a rabbit hole if you're not careful. And so we want to have a human step in and say, okay, we get it. That makes sense. We're good. Fascinating. All right, Fritz. Well, it is that time of year for Outlooks. But before we get to 2024, let's look back at 2023. So how do you think investors should consider last year and how should they assess their portfolio performance when they look at their year and reports? And also, did anything really change for investors in 2023? Well, you know, I, I think, couple of things on 2023. First, 
probably will be remembered as the year that the economic recession here in the U.S. that everybody was expecting, well, that, that never materialized. You know, we were all waiting, waiting, waiting uh, for, the, for the recession that, that never happened. And I also think that another thing that changed, though, last year was actually cash became an asset class. You know, finally, short-term interest rates picked themselves up off the floor and I believe three to six month U.S. Treasury bills, you earned something like 5% last year. And as you know, as we know, being in the market, that hasn't been the case in many, many years. I do think that investors were disappointed probably in the performance of their portfolios because we had a market that was driven by, you know, this magnificent seven mega cap technology funds. And you're not going to keep up with that when, when, you know, when that is driving uh, the entire market. If I look at investors, I would say, it's okay. You know, that, that's, that's not normal. Don't ex- please don't expect you or us or anyone to really be able to keep, to keep up with that. So cash became an asset class. FOMO took over a bit, right? And everybody felt like, oh, we're missing it. But you just have to realize it wouldn't be realistic to keep up with an index where seven stocks are driving the majority of the performance. Right on. All right, let's walk through three edges out for 2024. So this is kind of a three-part question. What is your baseline scenario? What is your bull case? And what is your bear case? All right. Can I start with the bull case? You can take whatever order you want. Thank you. So, I'm what you just rattled off some, you know, some very positive economic news. So we have strong economic growth. We have inflation decelerating. That's all good news. And so it's on the bull side. It's quite possible that the Fed actually does stick the landing, that they are actually able to tame inflation without causing the economy to go into a recession, and. Maybe that seems normal now, but that is really extraordinary if they actually can pull this off. So you could have a situation where inflation comes down, the economy continues to go along with, with good, robust growth, the job market stays strong, we have stable employment, and corporate earnings can continue to rise. And that is entirely possible. Where it's in, you know, that, is, that scenario could well play out. However, there are still risks out there, right? I mean, one of the things about monetary policy, which I mentioned earlier, talking about systems and these lags, is it takes a while for tightening of monetary policy for increasing interest rates and for you know reducing mm-hmm. the Fed balance sheet to take effect. And some people who do this analysis in, in economy will tell you, well, it's about you know 10 to 13 months that it takes. And we've had an inverted yield curve for just about that long now. And so it is entirely possible that now those uh, that monetary tightening really starts to bite a bit. You know, you have higher cost of capital. And so that could slow the economy. And you could reach a situation where the economy begins to slow and you could have a situation where inflation, yes, it's come down nicely, but there are many examples of monetary authorities reducing inflation, declaring victory, and then inflation goes back up. So there's still risks on the bear side. And lastly, there's geopolitical risk. I mean, we're at a much different 
geopolitical world than we have been for for a while. You know, and, and so right now those situations haven't necessarily flared up anymore and and spread, but that is also a possibility. So there are still definitely risks out there, and the, and the and you can't discount the fact that the bear case could in fact occur. And the thing about it is. Oftentimes, what happens is everybody's very bullish, and then it turns on a dime. So, entirely possible there. Our base case, we look at the market and we say, if you're looking at indexes like the S&P 500, the valuations are extraordinarily high. They're extraordinarily overvalued right now. And sometimes you feel like you're blue in the face from saying this. But it is, in fact, the case. These are not, and I think what's important for people to understand is these are not normal market conditions to have a market that's this overvalued. But as we know, markets continue higher even if they are overvalued. But what we would say is it's okay to have, and we're multi-asset investors, so we can dial up and dial back our exposure to equities or fixed income. We have a lot of flexibility. So right now, we have exposure to U.S. equity markets and we have exposure to ex-U.S. equity markets, but we're very cautious and it wouldn't take a lot for us to dial that back because there could be any number of catalysts that come along um, that could cause a problem for the equity markets. And when you're at levels that are this high, the fall can be very quick and it can be very steep. So our base case is that Things could muddle along from here, but we believe you have to be cautious. And what we would say is you really need to be hedged, right? So, and and being multi-asset investors, we can hedge in different ways. So we would say we want to own some gold and some tips for the geopolitical uncertainty and the potential that we could have stagflation. We want to own short-term U.S. treasuries in case we face a credit contraction where liquidity is extracted from the system, but we want to have some longer duration treasury notes for deflation, you know, in case we enter into recession. And we will invest in undervalued equities like uh, value U.S. equities or equities outside the U.S., such as Japan. But in terms of equities, we feel the best opportunities are not going to come in the equity markets until after there's some material correction there. So that was long-winded, but that's all three in there. <laughs> that was a content-loaded answer. Thank you. That was perfect. All right. So I have a question for you. So it seems like, you know, there's all these headlines and stories and narratives in the marketplace, but it seems like what has been the most powerful driver of market action in the last couple quarters, maybe more, is just anticipating what the Federal Reserve is going to do next. Do you think it's reasonable for investors to focus so much on the Federal Reserve? How much does Three Edge factor in their Federal Reserve? Sometimes I feel like I wish they were much less in the news than they are and, and much less influential than they are, but fact does the fact remains that they are very influential. But one interesting thing about that is really foundational to our investment approach is that the global capital markets are driven by these cause and effect relationships, right? And our model really focuses on understanding those cause and effect relationships that drive the markets. And we believe, and it's been our research has shown, that one of those is the impact of monetary policy on the markets. 
But what tends to happen oftentimes is investors focus on the short-term impact of these monetary policy decisions. And as I said, there are, you know, there are uh, people anticipate. So if they make a decision, that could have an impact on the market. But the far more important impacts of monetary policy tend to take several months, even up to years to play out. And so therefore, it's critical when you're making an analysis of how monetary policy is impacting the markets that you seek to model the lagged impact of policy across asset classes, stocks, bonds, real assets, cash and currencies. So I do think that we've reached a place where the Fed is too much a factor in the markets. I don't know how we put that genie back in the bottle, though. And I don't know if you, if you have an opinion on that. I mean, but it does seem to me that in in some respects, you have to pay serious attention to them because everybody else is. Yeah. I mean, I'd actually feel as like there is too much attention on it, but I guess, and we're long-term investors ourselves, so a lot of that stuff is more short-term in nature. But sort of the market kind of gets ahead of itself on what they think the Fed might do or might not do. And I think there could be opportunity for shorter-term traders there. It's not the game we play, but it's definitely something we have to talk about all the time because everybody's always asking about it. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Well, something else to think about this year, and that is that it is a presidential election year. Um, So how do you think investors should be thinking about this election? And can they and how can they prepare for it? Well, this is a really interesting year globally in terms of politics. Uh, 2024 could be one of the most politically consequential years. There are national elections in more than 60 countries, and half of the world's population is going to be voting. Uh, More people will be eligible to vote in 2024 than ever before. And so we have elections not only in the U.S., but around the world. One... (laughs) India, for example, is going to go to the polls in the middle of this year for presidential uh, election. And that means that over a billion people are going to cast votes, which is really mind boggling. Mexico is poised to elect its first female president. And that election takes place in June. And then we've already had the election in Taiwan, where the winner was not the candidate that the uh, Communist Party in mainland China wanted. And the new leader has promised to strengthen the island's defenses. And so that, you know, could definitely have uh, an impact and maybe heighten tension. Having said all that, I think it's clear that regardless of what else is going on elsewhere, the election that's going to attract the most attention is our presidential election. And, you know, who knows what will happen. looks like it'll be a rematch between President Biden and former President Trump. You know, how this thing plays out it feels to me right now that you know November is both fast approaching but still a long way off and that a lot of things could happen. There could be a lot of twists and turns. You know, I think in terms of policy, I think regardless of your politics, I think a second Biden administration would be more predictable than uh, Trump uh, winning the election and uh, taking his uh, second term. So there's a bit more of a wild card there. And I know People are always trying to anticipate what policies might be enacted and what they could impact in terms of sectors in the economy. And the other area I think it could be a big difference, I think, will be in the area of foreign policy. So depending on who wins the election, I think you will have a decidedly different foreign policy. That's probably the main difference. One interesting thing is, you know, the Trump administration put these tariffs in place 
But the Biden administration left them there. You know, they haven't pulled them back. And so in some respects, you know, it's oftentimes that politics is just white hot when people talk about it and people react in different ways. But in the end, the market usually tends to find its way through. So I don't know. I mean, it. I th- it's a really tough call. It's a very close uh, race. It's going to be very close all the way up to the end. I think you could get more volatility as we approach November, as people sort of anticipate the way this thing will go. But you can't really rely on the polls, that's for sure. We've seen that. And so it's going to be interesting. I think it could create more volatility. I'm hopeful that we get through it and, you know, the markets just continue and, 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 you know, go on their way, which I think is what will happen. But we'll have to wait and see yeah. Right, well, I also want to ask you about international stocks, which have really underperformed for years, and currently they're on sale versus U.S. stocks. Um, so can you talk about what it will take for that relative performance to turn around, and how should investors be allocating to non-U.S. equities? Sure. So we actually allocated to ex-U.S. equities last year because we were looking for equity exposure, and we're just the U.S. market was so overvalued that we tried to find different areas. And so we were invested in Japanese equities, for example. We were invested in European equities uh, in the first half of last year. And they did they did all right. They didn't, nothing kept up with the U.S. equity market, but what they did well, we felt more comfortable because of the valuation there. So we, and, and what you tend to have is you have extended periods, periods of time when the U.S. equity market outperforms, and we've clearly been in one, and it's gone on longer than 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 they typically do. But then you have periods of time where ex-U.S. markets take the leadership, and you know we feel we feel like we're overdue for that. One thing that could happen is if the Fed comes in now and has the capacity to bring rates back to less elevated levels, that could help the dollar back off, and we could see ex-U.S. equity markets, particularly, for example, emerging markets, they could do quite well in an environment where the dollar is less strong. They always struggle in strong dollar environment because they tend to borrow a lot of money in U.S. dollars. So I think what something that could drive this would be if the Federal Reserve comes in, begins to lower interest rates uh, back down from you know over 5% in the, in the Fed funds rate, that could help the dollar back off. And if that should happen, it could help the ex-US equity markets take the leadership from here. But again, I think the best chance for the non-US equities to take a leadership position for an extended period of time will only be after there's a material correction in the US market. So Fritz, Three Edge has written about a seasons of the market framework. Can you walk us through those seasons, how that framework works, and what that means for investors? Sure. So, I mean, one of the reasons that we we say that our you know our our diversified tactical strategies can make sense is that the market tends to go through cycles, and the economy and the markets go through cycles. And one of the ways we like to explain that is to say, well, you could think about those cycles the way you think about the cycles in the in in nature. And the season. So we have winter, spring, summer, and fall, all different seasons. And we cycle through those over time. So if you want to think about the markets in terms of the seasons, 
the, a good example is starting with the pandemic, where we had this, you know, basically shut the economy down. We went into a very steep recession. It didn't last long, but that would be what we would be defined as being in the winter. So the economy slows down, it goes into recession, and your bonds tend to do well because the monetary authorities step in and they lower interest rates, they grow their balance sheet, and they try to stimulate the economy. The economy starts to recover, and you shift from that winter season up into the spring. And what happens in that environment is your equities start to do well as people anticipate the economy beginning to recover. And we saw that following the pandemic. And then what can happen oftentimes is you shift from spring into the summer where your economy starts to overheat, your market starts to overheat, and you have inflation set in. And in that environment, the asset class that's going to bail you out are real assets. So you want to have some commodities and you want to have some gold in your portfolio for that environment. And then it's not necessarily the inflation that gets you, but it's the monetary authorities reacting to the inflation, the overheated economy, the overheated market, that summertime environment. They step in, they begin to raise interest rates, which we all just lived through fairly recently. They shrink their balance sheet. And what they're doing is extracting liquidity from the system, trying to cool inflation, trying to slow the economy. And then you can slide down into the fall season. And in the fall, in, in terms of the economic cycle or the market cycle, you enter into a credit contraction. And again, when you extract liquidity from the system, and that's a very difficult environment. And your equities don't necessarily do well, nor do your bonds, and your real assets don't help you there. But what can help you are cash equivalents, very high quality, short duration, fixed income instruments. And so that's in some respects, we use that seasons of the market as a way to describe to clients the way we look at the world. And so if you think about the world in that way, that you have these cycles, then being tactical makes sense because you want to adjust your portfolio across these asset classes as the seasons change, as the cycle changes. But one thing about our strategy that is also the case, we will always have some amount of allocation for all four of the seasons. We'll always have some bonds. We'll always have some equities. We'll always have some real assets and we'll always have some cash and cash equivalents because your model isn't always right. You don't know what's around the corner. And so to protect ourselves from ourselves in some respect, we are have full-time broad asset diversification. So we look at the market and the cycles that occur we compare those to the seasons of nature at, in, in a way to explain how we do that. And we hope that that helps explain why we're tactical and we make changes and also why we employ full-time asset diversification in our approach. That was too long. Sorry. <laughs> that was gold. What are you talking about? So in that article, I, I do want to mention that you did include one of my favorite quotes. And I love quotes. Robin knows I love quotes. That quote was invest in preparedness, not predictions from Nassim Taleb. I just love that article. But I want to talk about multi-asset investing a little bit, particularly the diversifying asset classes such as alternatives and real assets. You explain why you have them in the portfolio, but can you give us a sense how you sort of size those positions within a portfolio? Sure. So we have uh, basically uh, three core strategies. Uh, one is m most conservative, one is moderate, we call total return, and then we have more of a growth-oriented uh, core strategy. 
all three of those core strategies offer full-time asset diversification. So I just explained they'll have they'll hold uh, stocks, bonds, real assets, cash, cash equivalents at all times. But we will also adjust the holdings across those strategies depending on our model research and where we believe that we are in the cycle. And one thing about the, what you described in, uh, in terms of uh, alternative assets, in many respects, our core strategies, even though we're employing you know, basic stocks, bonds, we're not going off into the world of alternative invest- investments as defined in the institutional world, but rather we're using you know, basic stocks, bonds, uh, exposure to commodities, exposure to gold, and combining them into portfolios that have a very low correlation to traditional stocks, traditional bonds, and to other investment strategies. And so in some respects, you could look at these strategies and say, those strategies serve as liquid alternatives. Does that make sense? I hope. (laughs) Okay, one more sort of alternative asset class, and I'm sure you're getting this question a lot more of late, and I am, though to be honest, I'm surprised I'm not getting it even more. But what are your thoughts about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Do you include or consider those in your portfolios? So we don't include them in our in our strategies. So I, the way I look at it was, so the original intent, right, is to eventually have uh, these digital currencies and, and they'll serve as a store of value. And one way we talk about it is they'll become digital gold, if you will. They'll be an alternative to fiat currency. And you know that's a noble goal. That you know that that I think is what they're trying to accomplish. I do feel like up to this point, what they really are are, are speculative assets, right? And 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 so I think that's what we've seen. So it remains to be seen whether they can take this all the way through and come up with alternative to fiat currency uh, with through digital assets. So it remains to be seen for now. Very speculative still. We actually offer a uh, crypto strategy because we had a lot of clients ask us and this you know anytime the you know these currencies run up in, in in value your clients say you know gee we want to participate in that and we were afraid that clients were going to lose you know put their money in there and lose most of it and so what we did was and Eric Beagleize and our director of investment research who you know RSC yep he, devised, he found a way to use our model to simply analyze digital currencies and to try to get a handle on when you want to be fully exposed to them and when you want to back away and just try to smooth the ridiculous amount of volatility there. So we don't use them necessarily in our strategies. It's too speculative, but we do offer uh, our clients an opportunity to participate uh, through a model-driven approach to investing in them. And I don't think they're going to go away. I think they're here to stay. It just really, we'll see how long it takes for them to to, to achieve their ultimate goal, which I believe is this alternative to fiat currency. Great, good stuff. Okay, before we let you go, we're going to turn to our last segment of the show, which is where we ask questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on The Weighing Machine. And the first is what is currently your favorite investment idea? I love this question. This is my favorite question for today because I think that what our model research is saying to us right now is our favorite investment idea for the environment we're in 
is the need for investors to have more than one investment idea. That this is really a time where you need to be diversified. That, as I said earlier, these are not normal market conditions, and we would be very careful about chasing these overvalued markets. You know, we're seeing um, the S and P on a price to sales ratio or an earnings yield uh, basis is just dramatically overvalued. So we are willing to have exposure to equities because what we've seen here is maybe we're in the midst of a market melt up here and we're willing to partake in that. And we have been more overweight equities since the end of last year. But we think it's very important to consider hedges for these portfolios. And so as multi-asset investors, we can do that. So we want to go ahead and be exposed to equities. They could still go higher from here, but we want to have some golden tips for the geopolitical uncertainty and stagflation. We want to have some shorter term treasuries for credit contraction, longer term treasuries in case we run into a deflation or a recession. And we're willing to invest in undervalued equities, but we don't believe the best equity opportunities are going to be available again until we get a material correction. So I don't, I'm sorry to be a cheater on your question, but I really do think this is a you know, there are times when you can feel comfortable to really take a, an outsized position in an asset class, but I really feel like in this environment, just be cautious and, and hedge and diversify your portfolio is the, the way to proceed from here. So if I heard it right, you said put it all in Bitcoin. Yeah. No, no, I just got it. <laughs> no, no. I do love that question myself because it's so open-ended. It's so fun to see where guests take the answer, and, and that's a great answer. Now, yep. can I just say one thing? The yep. last I was on, I our best, I our best investment idea was Japanese equities, and that actually played out well. So there are, you know, there are times I think I feel confident saying, you know, this is the one. You know, go ahead and feel confident. Be overweight. That definitely not there today. No. Yeah. All right. So another question that we always ask, of course, is so how are you maintaining your health, both physical and mental? to perform at a high level in this demanding industry? Any new practices or protocols over the last year? So I have to give a hat tip to your colleague, Ben, because I had dinner with him and he told me, and I told him how the early morning is really uh, a special time for me and how I got up and did all this reading. And he said, well, I like that idea, except I really want to get my exercise in the morning. And so I took his suggestion and I started working out in the morning instead of the afternoon. And I think I'm going to stick with it. That really helps me have more energy throughout the day, keeps me sharper throughout the day. So, but, so that's what I would say. I want to really carve out that period in the morning to do things that just set you up for the day. So I do some exercise, I do some reading, more spiritual nature, and then I make sure that I do the most important or the work that demands the most amount of thought early in the morning. Because by the afternoon, I'm not as uh, not as sharp and, and, and there's not a time when I, I should be doing that work. So I guess that's, that's the one thing that adjusting my schedule to that and working in my workout earlier and not later, that seems to have really helped me. That last tip is good too. It's I still cannot protect my early part of the schedule for the really hard stuff. So I just- Do you have kids at home? 
uh, well, teenagers. So, because right. yeah. that you know we're empty nesters now, so that's a heck of a lot. You know, it's it, it's much easier. Yeah. All right. Here's another one for you. So, in your career, you've been around a lot of successful people um, who've helped you get to where you are today. So, who are those mentors and colleagues and people in your life that you're thankful for? Well, I, I you know I got to have uh, tip my hat again to to Steve Cucchiaro, who's our Chief Investment Officer and CEO, and I met Steve over 20 years ago, and you know, it, I've just you know, we've become very close, and and now we're co-portfolio managers on on another strategy that's sort of in our R and D lab, and uh, I just learned a lot from Steve. He's always willing to share what he knows. He's a very smart person, but he's also just a thoughtful person. So I, I think I've really learned a lot from him and and I'm just very grateful that I you know I happened to meet him and and and, and we've been able to work together over these last 20 years. So I, I really think he's the one person right now that, that I'm really grateful that I met and I've really enjoyed working with and I've learned a heck of a lot from. So I, I'll go with Steve. Thanks. So Fritz, what are you reading, listening to or watching at the moment? Any recommendations for our listeners? I do have a couple books. I did recently read Same as Ever by Morgan Housel, which is his latest book. I don't know how who Brad Spanking knew it is, but it's really good. And he wrote The Psychology of Money, which is a great book. And this book is really good. And Same as Ever is just this idea that, you know, particularly in our business, we're always looking for new ways to analyze things. And what he's saying is, well, it might be time well spent if you just look back and see what has been the same over time, because that might be telling you more and it might be more helpful than constantly trying to look at new angles to understand what's going on in the investment market. So I really liked his book. I'm in the midst of reading a book called The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman, and it's kind of scary. He was one of the co-founders of Deep Mind. And so he is really writing this book, from what I can tell in sort of halfway through it, really to say that, you know, in terms of artificial intelligence, there's no going back. You know, we're not going to be able to contain it. So we need to try as best we can to understand how to make it work for us and not against us. So it's a little scary, but I think, it, it, you know, it's helpful. You, you, you need to be informed when you think about this. And then I have one last book. It's not new, but the book *Sapiens*, which I just—it's just—it's a great book by uh, who is it? Noah Harari. And, and so that would be my my three books. Solid. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, this has been great to have you back on the show, Fritz. Thanks so much for coming on. And tell us how can our listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing at Three Edge. Sure. So people can certainly visit our website which is 3edgeam.com. And I think I could put that in the notes part of the uh, of the podcast too, so people will see the links there. I just spent a lot of time working on our landing page on the Orion website. For, so advisors who want to check us out, they go to the website, look at third-party strategists, and we appear first in alphabetical order. So you'll see us. And, and so we have descriptions there. And also we have a YouTube channel. We do a lot of short videos and I found those to be really, really helpful and, and, and very popular. So if you go to YouTube and just type in 3Edge, you will see us and you'll see all of our short videos. So I hope people, you know, take a look. Yeah. 
Well, Fritz, thank you for your time. Again, very useful, a fascinating interview. And I know this podcast is coming out before the big Ascent Conference in San Diego. So I know you're going to be there. Looking forward to hanging out with you a little bit there. And we are a sponsor this year, and we have a booth, booth number <laughs> 407. So All right. we'll be there. Yeah, looking forward to it. It'll be great. and We'll catch up there as well. Awesome. Thanks again, Fritz. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, let's get into it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And don't forget to subscribe if you like this episode. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion. First, we have Weighing the Risk podcast, which I host monthly on behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence. This is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top of mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance. It's New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. For more, including commentary, videos, and other great content, please check out the website, orion.com. Go to the resources drop-down menu and find me, plus a wealth of content I create just for you under Thought Leaders. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanman and our podcast guests are solely their own opinions, and they don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.